space power. What are you, Richard Nixon? Do you want some chamomile tea? Are you feeling emotional? You know, I'm still single. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that's not very good at abroad. I'm Kelly Annika. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. You've already made that joke. <laughs> yeah, it's like our whole thing that we do it's every true. week. You've, you've made that joke about a hundred times, really. Oh, yeah, I have. This is our hundredth episode, it isn't is it? It is indeed, yes. Wow. That doesn't count like our like. Yeah, there's it doesn't ca- And it doesn't count the instant takes, but, you know, this wow. is our like a hundredth official episode. hundred episodes. episodes. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. It is. We never thought this podcast would last. No, we didn't. Well, you especially. <laughs> right. <laughs> I thought it was a terrible idea. <laughs> and here we are now. Yep. Laughing all the way to the podcast. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> not the bank. Definitely no, not particularly. Not no, that. Uh, yeah, but thanks everybody. Yeah. for continuing to listen and welcome to any new listeners. Yeah, I think we have a few. Uh, I, judging by our download numbers, that's so. right. We've definitely moved up a bit, and Which that is, is exciting. Very, very exciting. And mm-hmm. we're looking forward to another year of exciting recaps and ridiculousness. Banter, plenty of banter. Oh, you love to banter, don't you? <laughs> You're like a bantha. <laughs> not really. They aren't very talkative. No, they're not. They're pretty... Uh, Dull-witted, really. Yeah, actually, it's really true. <laughs> At any rate, uh, it is now time to crown our Cousin of the Week. Okay. Cousin Kristen writes, Hi, cousins. So this probably was already noted by other cousins, and it's a couple weeks late, but this is just bugging me. During the Downton Cast Q&A in New York by PBS, an audience member asked Gareth Neem why the U.S., U.K., and other country cuts are different, and he insisted fervently that they're not. Who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? Meanwhile, we know the Series 1 cuts were pretty different, the truncated Patmore vision loss and William's mother dying storylines. But also, I just rewatched Series 4. On the PBS US cut, we saw the Peg family meet Isabel, Greta, and her biscuit. We see Isabel and Clarkson talk about the pegs and the supply closet she's stocking in the clinic. And we also saw Baxter praise Lady Sybil and on another occasion ask if the staff is facing cuts when Thomas was all worried about Lady Rose's surprise. All of these things are missing from the UK cut that is streaming on Amazon Prime right now. I actually rewound and jumped from episode to episode looking for these missing pieces that I remember seeing but cannot now see. All this is to say that he is an annoyingly pompous prig who shouldn't be allowed on press junkets. I'd rather see Baron Fellows. (laughs) Cheers and cheers to the US airing. Cousin Kristen. Thank you very much, Cousin Kristen. Uh, This is really great. Yeah. Because this is the year of hating Neem. That's right. We've resolved... Yeah, thanks for helping us out, Neem, with yeah. this. In, like, what are you, Richard Nixon? What no, is going on here? No, and I mean, here? he's the producer. Shouldn't he be aware? At least, like, I fully believe that it's certainly not his job right, to decide or think about how the different cuts are played in different countries. But you really but, would think that somebody would have been like, P.S., by the way. Yeah. Uh, here's all these different things. Yeah, well, and that's because I recorded the uh, PBS broadcast. Obviously, we've been going off the British mm-hmm. broadcast in order to get them out on time. Um, and I meant to go back and watch it at some point just out of curiosity to see what the differences were, if mm-hmm. any, this season. Uh, but 
I did not do that. Well, maybe we'll do it later. Maybe we will. <laughs> or if there's any cousins out there that happen to notice anything and want to let us know, I'd, I'd certainly be interested, just in case we happen to continue not doing that, which is possible. It is entirely possible, as I have significantly less free time than I have in the past. Right. Well, and plus, it's like, boy, we've just rewatched this and then done this whole podcast about it and somehow less motivated to go back yeah. and watch it yet another time. So, uh, yeah, just let us know if you notice anything. Mm-hmm. That would be great. Yes. Uh, yeah, and I also, this is just sort of in keeping with our 100th episode celebration. <laughs> uh, I've just been so impressed and, like, I don't know, touched, maybe? Mm-hmm. But, like, as, like, this premiere and even, you know, when they were airing in the UK, um, just... Our fans are so great. Yeah. Like you are all sending us really amazing articles and videos and really cool things. And, you know, this podcast wouldn't be nearly as good without you guys kind of making sure that we're up to date on everything. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, no. And there's just been some great conversation and comments and things like that. So, uh, hey, cousins, you're all right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you want to join in on all these conversations and comments, you know, check us out. Mm hmm. Uh, I'm not used to giving the spiel here, but no, here, I no, here really, we go. I'm, I, no. I got excited. I if thought- you'd like to, if you'd like to throw your hat in the ring for cousin of the week, you can send us a telegram. We're at upyoursdownstairs at gmail.com. You can send us a carrier pigeon or tweet. We're at five Maggie Smiths. That's at five, the number five Maggie Smiths. Or you can find us on Facebook. Just search up yours downstairs exclamation point. <laughs> I give you a B plus. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, fair. <laughs> I think that's about right. You'll get better at it. Yeah, yeah. Great. I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> Ever. Done. Yeah. That's it. Oh, absolutely not. All right. Well, fair enough. Uh, and also on the subject of the PBS broadcast, I don't know how many of you out there may have gone on to watch after the PBS premiere, The Manners of Downton Abbey. With Alistair Bruce. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. That dude is crazy. This chucklehead. Oh my god. And it was, look, he has the world's biggest boner for the Edwardian era, apparently. Yes. Which, you know, given his role on the show, makes sense as far as that goes. He's their historical... You mean his role as the Oracle? (laughs) The Oracle, yes. With his weird handmade box... (laughs) Right. ...that hangs on his chair that says the Oracle? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it is so weird. I mean, it's like... It's like he had full script approval on, like, this documentary. Like, this oh, was yeah. not The Manners of Downton Abbey. This was the heroic tale of Alistair Bruce. <laughs> Who uh, seems to be responsible in large part, and somebody pointed this out, mm-hmm. for, you know, basically why the liberals are always kind of, like, uh, derided on the show. Yeah. Well, because, I mean, it, it was all reasonably, you know... It was somewhat egregious, but like, whatever, all through the thing. But then at the very end, he finally says that the Edwardian era was the perfect blend of something and something. Because I wasn't even listening. I mean, After he the, said a perfect blend. It's the idea of, I think he said perfect balance. Oh, yeah, I think you're blend. right. It's not coffee. It's the class <laughs> system. Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, but he said that it was the perfect balance of like the responsibility of the aristocracy taking the lower classes under their wing and giving those poor buggers something to do. Right. Like, it was just so ridiculous. Yeah. And elitist. Yeah. And, you know, pro-toff. Right. That we did not throw anything at our TV because well, we no. love our TV. Yeah. But if we were incredibly rich, we might have done something. Y- yes. But Except just- if we were incredibly rich, we'd have been like, oh, 
Very good, sir. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it was the perfect balance. Jeez. Send that man a gratuity. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, but it's definitely worth a watch. You learn oh, yeah. some interesting stuff. Uh, primarily, you learn that uh, Lily James, mm-hmm. aka Lady Rose McClare, is super high <laughs> during all of her interviews. It's just like I honestly think, like, yeah. she like woke up, she got baked. Uh-huh. Somebody called her and was like, uh, "Are you coming to this thing?" And she was like, "Oh God damn it." <laughs> And, uh, God, I thought, uh, Gilly was real stupid. Yes. Like, he was real dumb, you guys. Right. Uh, the guy who plays Molesley actually had some kind of good yeah. insights. Yeah, although he was I was all like, right. what's up with your, like, mussed up hair? Yeah. Like, you know you're not 20, right? Like, nobody <laughs> is, nobody thinks that. Yeah. McGee had some really insightful things to say, particularly with regards to corsets. Yeah. And sort of how the changing fashions affected women, um, which is really prescient because we'll be talking about undergarments Ooh. later on in the podcast. Okay. Spoiler alert, everybody. <laughs> um, but she was saying, you know, she doesn't think it's a coincidence that, you know, after the war, women really stopped wearing these restrictive corsets, mm-hmm. you know, and improved their ability to breathe and move and the blood flow to their brain. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, I don't think it's a coincidence that you see women agitating for the vote and starting to kind of go off and build their own lives and identities Mm -hmm. because before that they were physically restricted from doing so yeah um yeah she's a smart cookie i can't believe we used to make fun of her so much because like now she's our very favorite (laughs) yeah it's crazy so i guess uh the lesson here is the only thing constant is change and mcg's weird accent (laughs) right she was different before the war she was different (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of the war, yes. Why don't we do this podcast? <laughs> I mean, we're doing it, right? I guess the recap. Yeah. So we'll uh, the reason for the podcast. Yeah. So I guess we'll uh, we'll get into that. All right. Let's do it. All right. Uh, we start off with Branson and Lord Grantham uh, walking along like they do. Great. Sure. Then we see Mrs. Hughes and Anna cleaning the burned remains of Edith's room that she set on fire. <laughs> um. <laughs> Sorting out the possessions and that sort of thing. And Mrs. Hughes finds the picture of Marigold underneath her pillow. Oh, was it the picture of Marigold? Yeah, it was Marigold. Oh, dear. Yeah. And she's like, oh, right. Uh, keeping a stranger's baby's picture under your pillow. <laughs> Old English custom. <laughs> Nothing to see here. We see Carson, Lord Grantham, and Branson walking with the village people out right. to the cricket pitch, the famous cricket pitch. <laughs> yes. Which is where apparently the majority of them want to have the war memorial. Right. They want to make it sort of a big garden and, and have it be this sort of event for people to go there. Or at least that's what the spokes lady says. Yeah. Like, I don't even know why they bother bringing the other vid- village people around, really. Just in case they need to rough anybody up. <laughs> uh Lord Grantham disagrees because, first of all, it's taken, like, centuries to build this cricket pitch, apparently. <laughs> right. It was started by the Romans. They didn't know what cricket was, but they had a feeling. This cricket pitch is right up there with the pyramids of Gaza <laughs> in terms of man-made wonders of the world. Uh, so Lord Grantham points out that a lot of other villages have their memorials in the center of town. So people can kind of incorporate them into their daily routine. And Carson wants to know if their memorial is to be no better than most of the other memorials. And I'm like, what are you even talking about? I am so bored with this. Yeah. Like the war is over. Can we stop talking about it? (laughs) Right. 
Anyway, uh, the head village lady points out that the memorial is more important than cricket. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> right. Like, wars come and go, but cricket always remains the same. Yeah, like, the war is over. There's still cricket yeah. to be played. Which, do they only use it once a year? <laughs> right. Like, this is my question about this cricket pitch. Is it just sitting there, like, not getting used? Well, it takes a year to recover. Like, a cricket pitch <laughs> is a delicate thing. Is it like a sentient cricket pitch? It's very temperamental. Yeah, it's a wizarding cricket pitch. <laughs> oh, god damn you. You know that's just Quidditch. Y- y- yes, I do. Except cricket makes more sense. Moving on. Uh, so Thomas is seeing off Jimmy Kent, who is going off to find other rich people to bang. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> bum, 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 bum. <laughs> it's- bum, bum, bum. So it's 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 a nice scene, really. I liked it. Uh, Jimmy's sorry that he almost got Thomas arrested that time, and it's a, they play it nice, but it's such a ridiculous oh, scene, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, I almost got you uh, pinched that time for being a puffer. Yeah, <laughs> good times. Yeah, but he says, he says, you know, if if I'd ever, if anybody had told me that I would be friends with a uh, well with someone like you, I wouldn't have believed him. I would have punched them right in the face, and everybody <laughs> would have said I was right. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so they're, uh, having a little bro goodbye, and... Well, Jimmy Kent says that he's sorry to see the back of Thomas, <laughs> which is a very poor choice of words. Well, yeah, phrasing. Um... No, and then he's like, oh, I'm terrible at writing letters, but, uh, hey, hope you find some happiness. And I'm like, wh- also... Why even bring it up? Why not be like, bye forever? Uh, yeah. Also, if you were so terrible at writing letters, you wouldn't be in this mess in the first That's place. That's a very good point. Mm-hmm. What? Oh my god, he is the worst. Well, he's been like, he's been like friend zoning Thomas so hard. <laughs> Cause he's like, oh, I'm writing all these letters. Well, I can't write to you. I mean, I think, you know, he's not gay. I think friend zoning is appropriate in that context. I know. Well, <laughs> he's like somehow like friend zoning him as a friend. <laughs> well, I, I don't I, know what I mean by that exactly. It's like they're not really friends. Right. But like they're friends. Well, I see what you're saying. Anyway, he drives off in a carriage, and Thomas has a sad. (laughs) Down in the kitchen, Daisy says she's very sorry to see Jimmy Kent go. Mrs. Patmore is sad there aren't any more handsome men below stairs, and now they'll have to make do with Mr. Molesley. I also want to point out, though, like... Mr. Molesley is still more attractive than Alfred ever was. So <laughs> let's count our blessings here, Mrs. Patmore. Yeah. Also, also Molesley pops in, you know, I'm still single. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Patmore asks how Daisy's maths are going. Daisy says that it's hopeless uh, because she's real optimistic. Right. Molesley says he's overwhelmed with the service because Jimmy Kent is gone now. Yeah. Then Mrs. Patmore asks where Jimmy Kent is when you need him. And I'm like, uh, fired. Like 20 minutes ago. Yeah, like, <laughs> stay up to date, you guys. It's not that hard. Right. Molesley's going upstairs with the pudding and then he's asking Carson if he is now first footman. And then Carson says that he is... First, second, third, and last footman. <laughs> and then Mrs. Huge basically says that they're in the end times of service, so he shouldn't expect to get any help anytime soon. Yeah, Hughes Stradamus. <laughs> Mrs. Hughes asks uh, Carson how the village people meeting went. Carson says that he's disappointed in what everybody else is thinking, but it's early days, and I don't care about this plot line. <laughs> right. Ah, honestly, you could probably count on three fingers the plot lines I give a shit about in this episode. Yeah. Well, it's a very slight episode. It is a slight episode. That is definitely true. 
So at luncheon, Isabel says that George is coming along well and that babies change so much at his age. You know, I mean, especially if you only see them once a week. Oh, yeah, totally. Right. Mary <laughs> Mary says that George is rather sweet. I don't know. I've never actually met the boy. <laughs> you know, that's my highest praise. <laughs> no, you can tell she doesn't give a shit about it. <laughs> she really like, does She really does not care. No. Even a little bit. Right. She's rather sweet, or so his nanny says. <laughs> Uh, Edith says that everyone's being very marvelous about the fact that she tried to kill them all in their beds, uh, but that she feels like she acted rather an idiot, and Mary's like, duh. Yeah. Like, it was on the front page of the Grantham Village News. Earl's daughter, idiot. Very little damage done in aristocratic blaze. I don't, I don't know what their papers are. Earl's daughter, idiot. Yes, the one you're thinking of. <laughs> McG says that Charles Blake has written. (gasps) (laughs) Yes, Kelly is very excited. I Uh, like Charles Blake. (laughs) He is sending uh, Simon Bricker there because he is a Della Francesca scholar and has just found out that they at Downton have a Della Francesca painting. What an exciting time to be alive. Well, yeah, it's 1924. Things are happening. (laughs) (laughs) Edith says that Charles just wants an excuse to pay court to Mary. Uh... But Charles hasn't actually invited himself. McGee offers to go ahead and invite him. And Mary says that she doesn't mind either way. Mm, she wants him to come there. <laughs> she she soups into it. McGee says that she will go ahead and invite him since they don't know Mr. Bricker that well. And he might suck. Yeah. Which has happened before. Oh, totally. That's how Charles Blake got there in the first place. <laughs> oh, God. Right? I can't believe how much I have, like, forgotten everything that happened <laughs> in season four, but then I keep, like, having these flashes where I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. Well, I keep... See, the problem... The one thing about having done it with the instant takes this time is I keep remembering things that happen, and I'm like, was that season four or five? And I've... I weirdly have not had that problem. I yeah. feel like I've been able to mentally keep them separate. So if you ever have any doubts... <laughs> okay. Come to me. I will. Okay. It's convenient. We live together. I know. It's great. And you've got my phone number. (laughs) Mary says to remember that she is going to be away from Downton from Tuesday. McGee asks where she's going. Apparently, Mary hasn't mentioned where she's going before. Uh, But she says that she and Annabelle Portsmouth will be driving around sketching things. Which sounds totes plausible. Right. Uh, Edith asks LG how his morning was. And he says that they haven't found a memorial site yet. And uh, Rose mentions that a friend is working with Russian refugees in York, and Lord Grantham pointedly pities these poor Russian refugees at Tom. Tom says that he feels sorry for anyone exiled from their own country. Yeah, failed zinger. Yeah. Nobody gives a shit. Right. You weren't exiled from your own country. You ran away from your own country. (laughs) That's a different scenario. Well, he is exiled from the country. Well, yeah. He's not allowed to go back. Well, except if Ireland... I forget when Ireland became independent. Oh, it was this year. Yeah. So once Ireland's independent, it's not like English... Like, he could go there, and then they wouldn't extradite Uh, him back to England for participating. Do you honestly think, though, that the new home rule is going to be super into this dude that was like... Oh, I'm afraid to burn down rich people's houses. Right, because again... I'm taking my monkey and I'm leaving. (laughs) Because he ran away. (laughs) Lord Grantham says that the exiles are better off than the ones who were murdered. Well, duh. Right. Uh, That is like the most obvious thing anyone's ever said. (laughs) Yeah. 
Isabel mentions that she was at the hospital and that a Mrs. Henderson has given a wireless to the board and has just brightened up the whole place. Rose takes the opportunity to hint at how great radios are, and Lord Grantham is like, no! Uh, but Edith continues demanding a radio. You mean Rose. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Edith is too preoccupied to even think about a radio right now. Right. She's got too much going on. <laughs> right. That's certainly true. Yes, Rose wants a radio, much like when I was a kid and I wanted cable. She has a very similar approach yes. to this He's scenario. like, can we have a radio, Dad? Can we have a radio, Dad? Can we have a radio, Dad? McGee's like, let's go through. <laughs> Edith arrives at Pig Farm and hopes she's not being a nuisance, even though she's obviously being a nuisance. Right. You can't just hope to not be a nuisance. You have to really put the effort in. <laughs> right. Mrs. Pigman tells her to sit down as she picks up Marigold, and then Pigman asks after the fire damage and suggests that Edith keep an eye on Marigold as she grows, and he loses the tactfulness Olympics. Look, this is the worst acting I have ever seen. I've seen a high school production of Godspell. <laughs> <laughs> It's all for the best. Uh, anyway, God help these poor piglets. Like, I worry for their future. Yeah. yeah. Mrs. Pigman takes exception to what Pigman says because he's like, oh, she's a foundling with no family and it's so great. Lady Edith, like, give her some money. <laughs> right. But Mrs. Pigman's like, um, she's no longer a foundling with no family. That's why we took her into our home. Right. And she's now, like, one of our own children. Uh, Pigman just keeps digging the hole deeper and pushing Edith toward this. Right. And with Edith, a startling lack of subtlety. Well, and Edith actually, to her credit at this point, uh-huh. is like, uh, I didn't realize you meant we were going to hop on this plan right now. Right. Like, yeah. I would have... Yeah, this is definitely on pig man. Like, you need to primarily. have a couple more powwows in the stone barn <laughs> right. before you could make this leap. The old abandoned stone barn. So Edith says she'll have to think about it, and then the pig man says, you know, you can't duck out if people get used to seeing you two together. You know, it's going to be a whole thing. And I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> he says that she'd be like a godmother, and Edith is like, oh yeah, like, that's a totally plausible thing. Right. But then Mrs. Pigman jumps in and points out uh, that they had Marigold christened, and her sister is already Marigold's godmother. Uh, Pigman suggests that Edith talk it over with Lord Grantham, and Edith is like, oh yeah, great, Marigold can have a play date with my niece and nephew. And then the Pigman is overly enthusiastic, and Mrs. Pigman is like, what? Yeah. Like, this is one of the worst conceived and executed plans I've ever seen. Yeah. Like, like it's just a disaster. And again, why can't he just tell Mrs. Pigman? I know. That, hey, P.S., you know, you know how Marigold's kind of ugly? Well, Edith's her mom. Right. <laughs> and Mrs. Pig, I mean, the only reason at the beginning was like secrecy issues, but Mrs. Pigman seems like a perfectly intelligent woman. Yeah. She, Why would she? No, she and I mean, she'd if, feel better. Well, she might feel better about it, even though Edith seems like very intent on like popping in all the time. But it's right. Like, but she would have understood. Yeah. And, you know. Well, and they could have worked out actual boundaries. Well, right. Instead of like yeah. Edith just being like, hello, I own you. <laughs> Ta-ta. I mean, you know, her family does own their farm. Mm -hmm. And and it's also, there's a shot as Edith Lee is that she makes this weird expression that's like, well, that went well. It's like, no. No, it did not go well. No. Look, she just tried to burn down her own room. This is not a woman at the height of her reason. Yeah. 
So Isabel and Clarkson are having tea, and the dowager comes in. So we think this is the dower house, but it doesn't really look like the usual tea-having parlor. Right, but it doesn't look like Isabel's either, so we were a little confused. But anyway, they're all having tea now. There's no Sprat in sight. Yes, which is a relief for me. Oh, really? A lot of people like him, and I don't. I like don't. him. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, like I, don't, I don't hate him. He just makes that same weird face all the time, and I kind of, I, you know. Well, they I'm, hadn't invented a modium AD yet. <laughs> Wait, no, not Imodium. The other one. No, I think, well... Wait, does Imodium help you be unconstipated? I no. think Imodium is to... <laughs> point. <laughs> this is great. This podcast just can't stop. <laughs> this is riveting stuff here. <laughs> anyway. Uh, you know... S- you know what? Let's, let's not... Let's... let's yeah. s- but, but, Sprat, not in this scene. Therefore... <laughs> <laughs> uh, Clarkson has been filling Isabel in about the recent... Uh, invention or discovery of insulin and they talk about how a diabetes diagnosis will no longer be a death sentence which is nice i read a story when i was a kid in 1880s utah about this little kid that got diabetes and it made me cry i mean even in the 1980s diabetes was still really like stigmatized yeah that's true which i learned from the babysitters club number three the truth about stacy (laughs) p.s the truth about stacy was that she had diabetes (laughs) thanks you're welcome the Dowager says that Isabel has been distracted from her interest in medicine by Murty. Murty! <laughs> uh, and in fact, Murty has invited them both to tea at his estate. Isabel says, oh, well, maybe that the Dowager is Murty's real quarry. Uh, but the Dowager says that she can tell if a man is interested. And, uh, you know, we're all adults here. It's clearly Isabel. Oh, yeah, definitely. Clarkson says that... Yeah, we didn't hear what the name of the estate was, so we're just calling it Carbonara. Right, because it was close to that, Mm -hmm. and that's delicious. (laughs) (laughs) So Carbonara has beautiful gardens, though of course it's the wrong season to see them. Uh, The Dowager says that seeing them in summer will be the final worm on the hook. And Isabel's like, lay off, you guys. I don't even like him. Ah, you guys, we're just friends, okay? God. And she says, even my sense of humor has limits. I'm like, oh yes, the famous Isabel Crawley (laughs) sense of humor. (laughs) She's known as the Oscar Wilde of Yorkshire. <laughs> She's not. That's Thomas. Right. <laughs> oh, speaking of whom, uh-huh. uh down in the servants' hall, uh, Thomas needles Baxter about nearly getting him sacked. And Molesley's like, hey, man, lay off. And so then Thomas lays into him and suggests that Baxter has not told him what he did. What she did. Yeah. Well, she kind of, you know, Baxter. Uh, well, yeah. She's kind of, I think she's a robot, actually. Well. So we can use whatever pronouns we want. <laughs> That's fine. Um, Rose has come downstairs because that is what happens now, I guess. <laughs> Boy, I had a real Alistair Bruce moment there. <laughs> well, anyway, Rose, she's young and impulsive. Yeah. So she has come down uh, and asked Thomas to tell Mrs. Patmore that she's downstairs. And we know she knows the way down, too. Yeah, that's true, because she was making out with Jack Ross. Well, I miss him. I know. He Nobody's was... fun in this season. Nah. Well, we'll, well see. Well, Charles Blake's in this episode. He's yeah. kind of fun. Um, anyway, so Rose compliments Mrs. Patmore's dinner. And then uh, Mrs. Patmore apparently had asked her to come down because she wants to know about the homely liberal and whether she would be interested in some extra work. Dot, dot, dot. Yeah. In Mary's room, Anna confirms with Mary that Lady Portsmouth will cover for her if the family telephones. Uh, because, after all, she's not actually going with Lady Portsmouth. And this is important, as yeah. Ben Grillo learned when he used Matt Smith as a cover when he was sneaking <laughs> the lawns. Sorry. No, and also, I, I 
skeptical about Lady Portsmouth's ability to cover for Mary. Because well, so if they call Lady Portsmouth's house and Lady Portsmouth is there not motoring around making shitty drawings <laughs> with Mary, right. what's Mary doing? Right. And like, is the whole household in on this? Like what, like, how is this? I mean, maybe Lady Portsmouth has got her own side piece, and they're like, well, let's coordinate here, and then, you know, which will work. That would- that's actually pretty smart. If yeah. that's what's going on here, but I kind of feel like that's not what's going no, on here. No, I agree. At all. No, it, she'd just be like, oh, yes, Mary, well, we're on this sketching trip, and I uh, I came back here for my purse, and... Uh- <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, the house is on fire! <laughs> is Edith there? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Anna says that she is very nervous about this trip, and she's not even going. Anna says that she'll have to choose the clothes she packs carefully so that Mary can dress without her help. Uh, Mary says that she'll have his help. Dun-dun-dun! Right. Uh, and we, you know, it's it's Gilly. Yeah. And It's never really established in this episode that it's right. him. Um, I mean, they talked about it at the end of the episode one. Right. But it's not very well set up. Right. But in any case, it's yeah. Gilly. And I'm like, if you're counting on Gilly's help, like, don't count on Gilly's help. No. Like, I just you're gonna imagine You're going to be wandering him. around half naked this entire <laughs> right. trip. And meanwhile, he's like lying on the floor all tangled up in a nightgown. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how this works. <laughs> Tell my parents. Oh, wait, they're dead. It's <laughs> <laughs> my impression of Gilly. <laughs> it's not bad. Thanks. <laughs> Anna says that Mary had better hope that Anna never writes her memoirs. Um, Why would she do that? Her memoirs would be exceedingly dull and blue tinted. <laughs> also, isn't it in like your contract? Like, hey, if you write your memoirs, don't put the family in it. I think it's implied. Yeah. Mary says that she does need Anna's help in one thing. You see, she needs to ensure that there aren't any consequences. And Anna's like, what? And Mary's like, consequences. And Anna's like, what? (laughs) Right. Uh, But Mary, of course, cannot buy any kind of birth control herself because she might be recognized. I mean, she probably would be recognized, really. Uh, And that Anna should, because for one thing, Anna is married, so there's no scandal there, right? I'm just thinking about the headline on the Grantham Village News. (laughs) Earl's daughter buys contraceptives. Yes, it's the one you're thinking of. Anna wouldn't know what to do, but Mary thought of that, and she gives her a copy of Mary Stopes' Married Love. Which has come up many times on this podcast. Yes, it has. Anna asks if Gilly shouldn't take care of it, and Mary says she wouldn't trust a man in that department. Which is, like, fair. I mean, particularly at the time. Right. But I think that that's a little bit of a very cosmopolitan 2014 yeah kind that's of an anachronistic line really because i well, mean it's it, not about trusting him or not it's about him not having any fucking clue right what any of this is right well and beyond that like you know the whole point of anna doing it is that she has a plausible like acceptable mm-hmm. reason to where gilly does not I yeah mean, gilly can't for the same reason mary can't yeah but anyway uh he's tangled up in a nightgown <laughs> Oh, I figured this would happen. (laughs) If only I hadn't fired that valet. He didn't fire his valet. Right. His valet died. (laughs) He just never hired a new one. Anyway. Right. 
<laughs> just making sure everybody's up to date on the real Gilly versus the fake Gilly that we are creating on this podcast. <laughs> what if it turned out that Green died because Gilly accidentally tripped and shoved him in front of that <laughs> And he just ran away. <laughs> I say, who's that gentleman tangled up in that nightgown? He's just killed that man. Shh, he's a lord. <laughs> Righto. Arrest an Irishman. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We assume, by the way, that this is a diaphragm. It's never explicitly stated what is being purchased. Yeah, but, but it's the only thing that's logical in any way. Yeah. Because uh, Mary only gets one. Right. And uh, unless they have some sort of magical condoms, <laughs> you can really only use those once. Right. Uh, in general. In general. Yeah. Pro tip. Yeah. <laughs> Pinch the tip. Well, yeah. Second pro tip. <laughs> Kids under 16, don't tell your parents we just told you how to put on a condom. (laughs) Also, don't listen to this. (laughs) We're very inappropriate at times. Oh, Tom, quit being such a prude. (laughs) All right. (laughs) (laughs) Great. In the servants' hall, Daisy hopes that Lord Grantham will buy a wireless. Molesley says he prefers the live music hall in York because fuck you, Molesley. Right. Well, I mean, I mean, he was being hipster about it. He is. But I'm also like, you know, you're not in York. And it takes like a long time to get there. Right. Like the sound quality may be better, but it's in York. Yeah. Thomas tells Molesley that Baxter is upstairs if he's looking for her. Then Daisy wants to know why Thomas is so nasty to everybody. And he says that Baxter's gone back on her word to help and support him after he got her this job. Uh, and then Thomas tells Molesley that Miss Baxter has a funny way of showing gratitude. And then, without very much fanfare, she's like, oh, P.S. Baxter is the thief who stole her mistress's jewelry and went to jail. Yeah. And, like, Molesley's like, no, like, there has to, like, be more to that story. Then Bates comes in and asks Great. if Anna's coming down. <laughs> this is just, like, the worst. It is. They were like, what the only we- thing, The only thing in this whole scene, I really like Daisy being like, why are you so nasty all the time? Why do you gotta be so nasty to everyone? Yeah. But she's gone. She's left. Right. She's not even in the room anymore. She's like, this is all I can do. So then Thomas starts hinting at Bates. He's like, oh, what about your friend, Miss Baxter? And Bates is just like, I hate you. <laughs> yeah. And, like, again... There, uh, yeah. I hate this. Yeah. Mosley says that he doesn't care what Thomas says. Like, he's like trying to like back up Bates. Right. And Bates is like, I don't need your fucking help. Yeah. And Thomas is like, uh, yeah, well, you may not care what I have to say, but you sure listen to my story about Miss Baxter. Thomas out. <laughs> and then Bates is like, what was that about? And Mosley's like, oh, it's nothing. And then, ugh. And then we move on. Yeah. McGee and Lord Grantham are walking down the stairs saying they need to send some cars to pick up Blake and Bricker. Lord Grantham wonders if people think that they're a hotel that never presents a bill. And McGee says, you've already made that joke. Man, she's so great. She is so great. I wish she lived at our house. I know. So they get to the library and Edith tells them that the pig men have taken in a child they want to raise as a pig. And uh, Edith would like to help this child with her money from her newspaper and her inheritance. Because she says from her articles, but I'm like, you do also own that newspaper now, right? Look, that was established. Probably the new. You remember you own a farm, right? Honestly, except I'm not even convinced that they'll remember. I think they're pretending that she doesn't own that newspaper anymore. Okay. Well, you know, we'll see. Look, I don't know. Sure. She's still got her trust from grandpapa, so yeah. I don't really have a lot of sympathy for her either way. <laughs> well, right. 
Lord Grantham cautions her that she can do that, but she can't just bail when she loses interest. And Edith is like, I won't. And I'm like, even though this is your actual literal child, <laughs> I still kind of don't believe you. Like Mary's lost interest in George. No, you're indicating that Mary ever had any interest <laughs> in George apart from securing, like, you know, her position. Fair enough. As the Dowager Countess, which again, I don't think she ever gets to be. Well, this I... This is look, so devastating. Yeah. Rose asks Lord Grantham if he's seen this article she just happens to be reading on how the wireless is becoming cheaper and more reliable, and Lord Grantham just keeps saying no. I just, no, I just wish he would, like, start, like, leaving clippings around and, like, yeah. standing outside of his door, <laughs> sighing heavily. <laughs> yeah. It's I, kind of cute. Yeah. I also wish that Lord Grantham had added in his advice to Edith, also, make sure you don't set that child on fire. <laughs> I don't care if Drew is head of the fire brigade. <laughs> you know who I miss, though? And actually watching that Manners of Downton really made me remember this. I miss old Rose. Oh, yeah. Like, remember when Rose was sleeping with that married guy and was dressed in all crazy mm-hmm. and, like, was nuts? Now yeah. she's just like, oh, I'm adorable and I want a wireless. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah. I mean, it's really the same thing as Branson. Like, she's, you know, just like drank the kool-aid of downton and is just all conforming now they're basically the borg of yorkshire (laughs) downstairs carson wonders what mr branson's pal the homely liberals doing downstairs then mrs hughes says she doesn't know and she asks after the memorial and then carson says that lord grantham is resisting the idea of a garden mrs hughes gives him a look and he says he can't agree with Lord Grantham, but she does. He thinks the memorial should be in the middle of the village so people will pass and be reminded daily of a stupid war. <laughs> and Carson says that he is more disappointed in Mrs. Hughes than in Lord Grantham. And then Mrs. Hughes says every relationship has its ups and downs. And I'm like, you don't have a relationship. Right. You're coworkers. Right. Also, why would he be more disappointed in her? Like, she just disagrees. Yeah. Lord Grantham just wanted to keep his cricket ground. Yeah. Like, and he's on the committee. Yeah. So maybe you should be more disappointed in the person whose opinion actually counts for something. Yeah. <sighs> you also don't say pal as enjoyably as McGee does, Carson. That is very true. <laughs> also, I'm going to try really hard to stop going, after every scene (laughs) yeah that's probably for the best yeah sorry everyone yeah anna enters the druggists and asks the druggist if there is a lady that she can deal with and he says all right wait over there Uh, a man comes in and anna tells the lady to serve him first Uh, he just wants some safety razor blades and is out of there lickety split (laughs) toot sweet that's right uh, the lady is quite rude. Uh, Anna shows her the book, and she is, like, super moralistic and is like, ah, you know, blah, blah, blah. well, I see you're married. And she's like, you know, but I don't want any more children. She's like, well, you know, abstinence is an option. And I'm like, she's married. Uh, listen, dude. I know. I mean, I know. You've never had to buy plan B. Granted, buying plan B at a pharmacy in Northern California is like (laughs) completely in the opposite direction where the guy is like, do you want some chamomile tea? Are you feeling emotional? And I'm like, nope, just uh, want that medicine. Uh, But Anna says that it's for her health, which she relents a little bit. And anyway, she does eventually sell Anna the diaphragm. And Anna's like, nope, no instructions. I understand everything. Got to get out of here. Bye. Yeah, because another customer's come in. And in the deleted scenes, actually, he says, no, I'd also like a diaphragm, please. (laughs) Right. I understand this is the diaphragm store. (laughs) Some kind of special? (laughs) (laughs) I'll take 10. (laughs) A wide range of diaphragms. (laughs) I have lots of intercourse. 
<laughs> in Mrs. Hughes's parlor, or possibly not the parlor, I don't know. Anyway, they're downstairs. <laughs> sure. The homely liberal says she will take half a crown per session to Tudor Daisy, which is five shillings a week. Mrs. Hughes offers her sitting room to them for lessons. And then the homely liberal says she'll see Daisy after school. And then Mrs. Patmore is like, that's Daisy's busiest time, which when did you think this lady was going to come Tudor? Right. Also, isn't all times her busiest time? Yeah. Isn't that your life? <laughs> anyway, the homely liberal is like, oh, I can't come any earlier. Bye. <laughs> so Daisy's saying that she's insisting that she'll pay for her own lessons. But then Mrs. Patmore says she wants to. And I'm like, are you all getting like, do you have stock in Downton Abbey? Like, where are you getting all this money? Well, I mean, I think, you know, it's Mrs. Pa- like Patmore, Hughes, and Carson, and this is from our conversations with Lucy Lethbridge, they probably are making decent money. Okay. I wouldn't have thought that before, but that conversation may be like, okay, maybe they're doing all right. Regardless, uh, yeah. Mrs. Patmore is very insistent that she wants to cover this, and then Mrs. Hughes says that Mrs. Patmore is being very nice. Then Mrs. Patmore is like, oh, I just doubled me workload. And I'm like, yeah, idiot. Yeah. Like nobody's made of time <laughs> right you can't just expect daisy to be able to like do that small no not small wonder was it no okay all right we're about to get into something deep here all right so there was a sitcom in the 80s that okay. was about this girl and her dad had like been an astronaut okay and he had like discovered some method of like stopping time and she like lived with her mom and possibly her like stepdad or something but like her dad would like come talk to her from space <laughs> um, <laughs> this is a real show no i believe you look no. small wonder was a real show yeah. but this is not less ridiculous no so like she could like it was like she had to clap to stop time no it was like she snapped to stop time and then she'd clap to start it again okay and the only real memory that i have of it is like she threw her wastebasket up in the air froze time like went down to like tell her mom about it <laughs> and then was like oh i have to like restart time to like show her. but then like she restarted time and then the wastebasket fell and made a big noise and anyway right. cousins do you remember this show was this live action? It was live action. It All was right. real. She had a very bad haircut. Was this I Dream of Jeannie, the new class? No. <laughs> it was a space power. All right. If anything, it was Mork and Mindy, the new class. <laughs> Fair enough. Anyway, okay. Um, Look, all I remember is Small Wonder and Punky Brewster. Beyond that, I got nothing. Uh, yeah. So anyway, my point is Daisy doesn't have the power of this totally real show that I don't remember anything else about. Uh, <laughs> let's all move on. Let's do it. <laughs> Lord Grantham and Bates are sorting out some clothes for Rose's refugees. McGee wants to know why Lord Grantham is so opposed to the wireless. Or she sort of hints around about it and he wishes she'd just ask for one. Uh, and McGee says that she wouldn't mind having a wireless around. And Lord Grantham's like, well, that's because you're American. And she's like, well, I suppose after 35 years, you can still throw that in my face. Oh, he can, and he will continue to do so, I think. Yeah, Lord Grantham says that it's a waste of life, everybody huddling around a box. Uh, McGee points out that they would be able to get the news from it. You know, well, we'll only watch the History Channel. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care how many aliens were in Hitler's army. Thank you very much. <laughs> McGee asks Bates what he thinks, and he says that he can't see the Dowager with a wireless. Um, that's not what literally anybody <laughs> asked you, Bates. Right. Lord Grantham says that it's a fad that will pass. Sure. Um, then everybody will get iPods. Yeah. Anyway. 
A car pulls up to the Carbonara estate, and the Dowager Countess says to Isabel that her Lord Grantham said it was the coldest house in Yorkshire. Murdy comes out very hospitably, and mm-hmm. Isabel, because she is the queen of tact, <laughs> says she knows it's the wrong season, but she'd love to see the gardens. The Dowager Countess is like, um, Murdy is our host. I think he gets to decide how we're going to spend our time. Okay. Yeah. And Isabella is super butthurt. Right. Even though she's the one who fucked up. Yeah. She was being rude. Yeah. And very common. Yeah. And she's, you know, she's solidly middle class. She should know better than that. Right? Or she's been hanging around with these rich people for like a million. How, how long has it been? It's been 12 years. Yeah. 12 years. Yeah. yeah. So uh, get with the program. Here, here. In the boot room. In the boot room. <laughs> Or as I wrote down, not the boot room. <laughs> I just, I again, I feel like the people who wrote this show were like, ah, we need a new, we need a new set. Ah, the boot room. Right. They should, they should, here's money making tip. Release a special boot room free cut. For the last <laughs> couple of seasons. I think, I think there's an opportunity. Downton there. minus boot room. <laughs> Anyway, Molesley's there scrubbing away, and Baxter comes in, saying that he's been very quiet, and she wishes he'd tell her what's wrong. He tells her that he knows that she's a thief, and he wants more information, but Baxter refuses, for good reasons, reasons that will totally make sense. Uh, she says that she was a jailbird, but she's not the same person anymore. Well, she's not in jail anymore, right. but I'm not sure that's the same thing. <laughs> right. And that is not really what Molesley wanted to hear. Yeah, he wants to hear some good story about how she was desperate. And she's like, nah, I pretty much just wanted to, like, see what it would be like. Right. Uh, and, you know, that's fair. I think it's totally fair of Molesley, actually, to be upset with her. Yeah. Because, you know, this is a serious offense. Regardless of McGee's baffling refusal to do anything with the information. Right. <laughs> uh but, you know, I mean, like, for a servant, like, if he's been, like, known to be palling around with her and she ever gets up to anything like this again, it's yeah. going to reflect poorly. God knows he doesn't need the help. Right. Back in Murdy's drawing room, everyone's having tea. Murdy says that they can walk the terraces after they've finished. Uh, he also says he's read a book on the science of quarantine he wants to discuss with Isabel. And uh, listen, I have to say, Isabel, you need to stop fucking being a bitch. Right. Do you know, even to this day, it is very hard <laughs> for me to convince Tom to participate <laughs> in my interests. <laughs> this podcast being one of those things. That's right. No, it's incredibly hard, in my opinion. Yeah. Like, women will do things uh, to ingratiate themselves with men, and men are just like, I'm great, I'm only going to read Lord of the Rings forever. <laughs> and, you know, they don't make an effort. Whereas right. Murdy, who is arguably in the better social position, mm-hmm. like, Murdy is what a feminist looks like, you guys. <laughs> in all honesty, I'm a huge fan of Murdy. I'm a huge fan I'd as well. I'd marry Murdy. I I would too. Well, he's got those dope gardens. I You'd know. have to be a fool be not rich. to. He's very charming. And handsome. Mm-hmm. I think he's one of the handsomest men that's ever been on this show, honestly. Yeah. He's a silver fox. Yeah. He makes yeah. Sir Anthony Strallen look like, you know, freaking porpoise hork. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, he look. I mean, I he was rocking his brown suit and just looking good. No, he's, he's uh, you know, I'm a big fan. Yeah. We're shipping. Murdabell. That's right. Come on, guys. Let's get on it. <laughs> uh, anyway, so he worries that they will bore the Dowager Countess. 
and oh i'm sorry yes. isabel worries that right. they will bore the dowager countess and Murdy's like oh yes i need to i need you to keep me in check my social awkwardness is really out of control <laughs> the dowager countess says that isabel is never happier than when she has a chance to use her guiding hand and isabel is like hey you don't speak for me and uh, she then tries to steer the conversation in a direction she likes better by complimenting how pretty the room is. Murdy says thanks, and actually his mother redid all the rooms in the 1890s, mm-hmm. and his wife didn't use that room that much because it was too close to the front door, hence uh, the cold, uh, cold estate. Right. Isabel really loves it, and then Murdy says that it's a woman's room, and it needs a woman's presence. When he's in there, he feels like a bull in a china shop, and the dowager gives Isabel a look and Isabel kind of shrinks. Right. She's like, oh my God. And I'm like, Isabel, where have you been? I know. This dude was ready to propose to you like the second he met you. Yeah. He thinks you're amazing. Why don't you just go with that? And he is a smooth operator. He really is. Yeah. <sighs> like just throughout this whole conversation, he just coolly uh-huh. like, you know, moves things in his direction. Bates and Anna walk and talk and he wonders why she's not traveling with Lady Mary while she's gone for a week sketching it up. Uh, Anna says that she'll be driving around, and she's not sure where she'll be staying with Lady Portsmouth. As Mary had said earlier, whenever they'll they'll just stop whenever they see something they want to sketch. I really feel like Mary should have come up with a more plausible cover story. Yeah, she 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 could have been off like researching new pigs or something. Yeah, that would be more like her. Or grain prices. That's right. Or something. Mm. Or I don't know, schools for George. Whatever it is that like rich women with no husbands do at this time. Yeah. Although I guess probably most of that stuff is boring stuff like sketching. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Anyway, Bates says that it doesn't sound like Mary. It's too bohemian, which is very true. Uh Anna says that she supposes Lady Mary is allowed to get away from it all once in a while. Uh, Yeah, great scene, guys. (laughs) Thanks so much for sharing. (laughs) McGee asks what Lord Grantham thinks of Edith's generosity to the Drew girl. And Lord Grantham thinks that it's an, it is an expression of grief because Gregson is probably dead. They haven't confirmed that he's dead yet. So that okay. may be why she is not talking about owning that newspaper. That may be true. Because I think, I mean, you know, I don't know about probate or anything, but like, mm. I think, you know, the person has to be like legit dead. Okay. But he did put it in trust for her. Right. So even if it's not hers, like overtly, like she does control it. Well. Anyway. Uh, yeah, I, d- I don't know. Uh so he worries about how this is all going to play out when Edith has a child of her own, right. which like, isn't she like 400 years old at this <laughs> point? Like, well, that, and also, you know, she'd have a child of her own already if you hadn't chased her fiance away. That's a really good point. No. No, and it's just, uh, it's so weird. Well, they didn't chase him away. He was No, 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 not those. Oh, God, right. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah, you chased Sir Anthony Stroud. Lord Grantham. (laughs) I just happened to have rewatched that episode recently when I was looking for a screenshot for 12 Days of Downton. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. It's fresh in my mind. At any rate, uh, no, because, okay, so let's suppose. So, Mary, I think, was supposed to be like 18. In the first series, which puts right. Edith at about 15 or 16 at that point. Right. So she's like 28 or 30 or something. Yeah. Which is like old to not be married and have a kid at this point. Yeah. And like, I mean, you know, it, there's just this like constant retconning of Edith going on with regards to Lord Grantham. Because right. remember when he used to be like, oh, I guess we'll be stuck here with Edith forever. <laughs> and... I don't like now he acts like they're best friends. Yeah. Although they did both, you know, in season one, they were both very sad about Patrick dying and they were like right. the only ones who were. That's true. So it's all just very weird. Yeah. Oh, well. 
McGee says they will cross the bridge of Edith losing interest in the Drew girl uh, when she has her own hypothetical child when they come to it, which I choose to believe is McGee's way of saying, you crazy Lord Grantham. <laughs> uh, and then Lord Grantham just hopes the pigmen don't get sick of her, which, uh, uh too late. Yeah. It's already happened. Yeah. That pig has sailed. <laughs> In Mary's room, Anna talks about how it was hard to buy birth control and how, you know, rude they were to her and that it was unfair for them to punish her. What if she was a working woman with eight children? Doesn't she have the right not to have more? Uh, And Mary agrees. And Anna says that she almost wants to go back and buy a baker's dozen. Well, great. I'm sure that would go over really well. (laughs) They'd be like, weren't you just in here? (laughs) Right. What's up, whore? (laughs) Had sex. I want some more. (laughs) Two diaphragms for every boy. (laughs) McGee and Lord Grantham are going down to dinner and they meet Mr. Bricker on the stairs. Uh, and he's some guy who's been in stuff. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no, we looked him up. We did. Wasn't he in like a room with the view or something? Yeah. He was in one of those things. Yeah. Yes. He, no, he was in Gosford Park. Oh, right. He was that guy. Yeah. Yeah. He was that one, uh, like, what, he, he was the, I think he was yeah, a servant. He was a servant. He was that one, he was like a kind of mean servant. Yeah. He yeah. He wasn't the butler, was he? I don't remember who the butler was. I remember him being a servant yeah. and being mean. Is what anyway, I so he was in Gosford Park. Yeah. But uh, McGee says that uh, they can show him the Della Francesca painting that night or the following day. He definitely wants to see it after dinner and then the following day in, in daylight. Mm-hmm. So he's very excited about this painting. Lord Grantham says he looks like he hasn't been around in Britain because he's very brown looking. And... Bricker says that he's been in Alexandria for the summer. Lord Grantham pretends to feign interest, but says he's not very good at abroad. Well, you're not very good at home either. Yeah, he's really, you're not good at anything. Right. So let's just, you know, be honest with ourselves. (laughs) In the drawing room, Thomas tells Rose and Branson that the homely liberal is still there. Rose wonders if they should invite her to dinner since she is Branson's friend. Branson says that Lord Grantham wouldn't like it. But Rose says that it seems rude not to ask her, and she will ask Cora. Charles Blake is here, finally. <laughs> Woo. So he snarks at Mary that she's been neglecting him, and uh, he's obviously not the lucky winner. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mary says, oh, why? Did Tony tell you we're going to bone? <laughs> so Mary says... Well, yes, he... Naturally, he posted it on the bulletin board at our club. Like you do. (laughs) So Mary says that she doesn't seem to have broken Blake's heart, and Blake says she seems disappointed, which she She, is. Oh, listen. (laughs) I've played this game. (laughs) It's terrible to lose. Uh, So Mary asks who this Mr. Bricker is, and uh, Blake says he's just a chap. Right. And I'm Uh, like, uh, shouldn't you have some sort of less tenuous... Yeah, this is how con artists infiltrate the upper society. Yeah, have we learned nothing from that card sharp from last season? (laughs) Like, come on. Anyway, uh, Mary also points out Bricker's tan. And she apologizes for hurting Blake, even though he already said he wasn't hurt. Right. So maybe you need to, like, back off, Mary. Mary's, know when you've lost the skirmish. Mary's like, I'm sorry I hurt you because I definitely hurt you. <laughs> you feel really bad. I wrote about it in my journal. <laughs> anyway, he says that he's only come to Downton to wish Mary and Tony well in person. And I'm like, liar. <laughs> McGee tells Lord Grantham that the homely liberal there, and he's like, she's here? It's like, yes, she's planting a bomb in the cellar. <laughs> And says that they should offer her the option of staying for dinner. Branson says that he doesn't want to impose, but McGee insists that this is his home and that he should ask her. 
Uh, so Lord Grantham, oh yeah, Lord Grantham came in at this point and was then horrified. Uh, but McGee says they have to respect Tom's choice of friends. Lord- do they? <laughs> I don't think they do, honestly. Their house. He has, you know, he's, you know, been exiled from his home country. <laughs> he's essentially a refugee. Uh, I think that they can kind of boss him around however they want. Yeah, he can have a little party down at the estate agent's office if he Ooh, wants. Ooh, he sure can. That'd be Punch fun. and pie. Yeah. Get all socialist up. <laughs> Invite the pigs. That's right. Pigs of the working classes unite. Yeah, that's called Animal Farm. Oh, right. <laughs> Never read that. Uh, it's not that great. That's my understanding, yeah. Anyway, Lord Grantham calls a homely liberal a tin pot Rosa Luxemburg. Uh, McGee says, well, Rose doesn't know who that is. McGee says that she was a German communist who was shot and thrown in a canal and that they wouldn't wish that on anyone. And Lord Grantham is like, uh, would we? It's like, well, I guess she would spoil the canal. <laughs> And that brings us to our first of two recurring segments. It's everybody's favorite, Tom Repeats History, with our resident socialism specialist, Tom. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Man, that's fun to do. (laughs) Sure. Uh, So yeah, Rosa Luxemburg. uh, I was just looking her up to figure out who she was, and then I, I found her kind of interesting. She was really kind of this, like, Cassandra of European socialism. She was uh, born in Poland in 1871. That was controlled by Russia at the time. And by age 15, she was involved with the Proletariat Party, which was a sort of proto-socialist party. Although that same year that Wikipedia says she got involved with it, it also says that the party was crushed. So I'm not clear on the sequence of events there. Like by Iraq? By Russia. Oh, yeah, Iraq. (laughs) Sure. Uh, she opposed the Polish Socialist Party that was around at the time because she felt that the priority should be the struggle against capitalism overall and not against specifically Russian occupation, which was what they were focused on. Uh, so she founded the Social Democratic Party of Poland and uh, throughout her life was an important uh, theoretician in Polish uh, socialist politics, even though she wound up spending most of her life in Germany. And that started in 1898 when she moved, she uh, married a Gustav Lubeck to get her citizenship and moved to Berlin. So there she was involved with the left wing of the German Social Democratic Party, uh, which was the, you know, more revolutionary wing as opposed to the reformist wing that was a bit more powerful. And she was very disdainful of them, always denouncing their, their compromises. Uh, and, she sounds like fun. Yeah, and she was also very much active against militarism and the war that she saw coming very early on. She was ag- agitating against militarism from like 1900 on. Oh wow! Yeah, and she wound up. She was imprisoned th- three times between 1902 and 1905 for her various things. At the Second International Socialist Congress in Stuttgart. She successfully proposed a resolution that all European workers should unite in preventing the upcoming war. And so all European workers agreed. That was the motion was approved and so like they were Did all Did they tell the rest of the European <laughs> workers that were not present <laughs> that this had been decided on their behalf? Well, and this was still a few years in advance of the war. Uh, in the meantime, she was teaching at the training center. One of her students was a Friedrich Ebert, who later led the Social Democratic Party and became the first president of the Weimar Republic. Whoops. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. Right. 
So she continued trying to organize plans for a general European strike in the event of war. But when war broke out, the French socialists, as well as the Social Democratic Party, all immediately jumped in and supported the war. And Rosa, at this point, was contemplating suicide because everybody at the first outbreak of war had completely abandoned their principles and joined in with this militaristic fervor. That is pretty depressing. Yeah. But she rallied and began organizing anti-war demonstrations, leading to being imprisoned again. Uh, Once she got out, she organized the Spartacus League, named after Spartacus. Did she say, I am Spartacus? Uh, well, they did sign all their pamphlets Spartacus because oh. they were all illegal pamphlets. Oh, they were that's all, a good point. yeah, agitating against well the war. Done, Rosa Luxemburg. Uh, she, her code name was Junius after Marcus Junius, or Lucius? No. I forget which one is the one that founded the Roman Republic. Something, something, something. Mm -hmm. One of which was Junius. Great. Anyway. This has been really helpful. Well, I thought. I hope you're all writing this down. (laughs) I thought I remembered when I started that sentence. Uh, But yeah, she organized it with this guy, Liebknecht, and eventually got imprisoned yet again for two and a half years this time, but continued writing, and her works all got smuggled out of prison and and disseminated, uh, including an article in which she was heavily critical of the Bolsheviks and predicted that they were going to form a dictatorship, Mm -hmm. which obviously was correct. In 1918, as the war was ending, uh, the German Revolution broke out. Uh, It started when the German Navy even though they knew the war was over, decided that they were going to send all their ships to sea and have one big final fight it out with the British Navy, which caused all the sailors to mutiny. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You got, a, like, a whole bunch of battleship Potemkins on your hands at that <laughs> right. point. They did, and quickly much of the country had been controlled by uh, workers and soldiers' councils. Uh, so at this point, she and Liebknecht were released and got the Spartacus League going again, uh, and they joined a few other m- movements to form the Communist Party of Germany, with the two of them as leaders of the Communist Party. <clears throat> she advocated for the Communist Party joining the Weimar National Assembly, which was then meeting to form the Weimar Republic, but the others in the party outvoted her and boycotted it. Then a new uprising broke out. Uh, it wasn't planned by the Spartacus League, but it was Spartacus League members just sort of spontaneously like putting up barricades and taking over parts of Berlin. She argued strongly that they should not get involved, but Liebknecht decided that they had to you know, join in with the workers and, and support this uprising that already happened. So they joined in. At this point, Ebert, her former student, ordered the Freikorps, which were a bunch of right-wing pale paramilitary groups of basically soldiers who after they disbanded you know sort of didn't know what to do and just joined up with other soldiers and and just like you know wrecked shit if they felt like it and ebert ordered them to go in and destroy the rebellion they tracked down luxembourg and Liebknecht, uh captured them tortured them and executed them indeed throwing her into the canal as they said uh, the four soldiers involved, two of them were never charged with anything. One was sentenced to four months for failing to report a corpse, although he escaped after a brief custody. And the fourth was sentenced to two years for attempted manslaughter, uh, although he was later compensated for that by the Nazis. Okay, listen up, everybody. I'm <laughs> literally sitting here with my jaw dropped. Yeah. That's horrific. It is horrific. Well, I mean, yeah. It's not like we're not seeing that exact scenario being played out right now, sure. but it's just Jesus. Yeah. But I mean, and you know, Germany after World War I uh, was not like a great place to be. Would you say it was like the wild, wild west? <laughs> the movie starring Will Smith I was Smith about to say, is Will Smith Kevin Klein. Yeah. <laughs> so Robot it was like, spiders. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. With Kenneth Branagh's head. Yeah. That's right. Terrible. I'm glad I don't live then. 
yeah no <laughs> just made no sense went on forever yeah good song though <laughs> all right well thank you very much tom for repeating history you're welcome in mrs hughes's parlor daisy says oh she's left mrs patmore to make all the dinner and like runs out of there only liberal calls after her to uh tell mrs patmore that she says daisy will prove a talented mathematician and i'm like doubtful <laughs> yeah no actually in season nine of downton daisy joins the enigma project <laughs> Oh my God! What if Benedict Cumberbatch <laughs> is on season nine of Downton Abbey? I will laugh so hard. Uh, Branson's there too for some reason, and I guess he's just asked her to stay for dinner because the homely liberal asks whose idea it was to invite her. Branson says it was Rose, uh, but he likes the sensation of not being alone in his opinions at the dinner table, which is a really selfish reason to invite somebody to dinner. It is. Doesn't really make her feel that wanted. No, it's not really her job to make sure that you have the courage of your convictions, you douche. Yeah. Although she puts the lie to that by saying she's glad if she's helped him stay firm in his opinions, which stay firm. Right. And uh, she doesn't want to put anyone through a whole ordeal again. Okay, so suggestion. Why not have dinner and just be polite? Um, She can't. <laughs> she's genetically predisposed <laughs> to rudeness. So anyway, she says thanks and that she's just going to walk back to the village instead of needing the car. Uh, Branson says, when in Rome, and then she goes on an extended metaphor about how maybe he's been in Rome too long and he has a bright future and can do anything he wants. I'm like, you know he's a mechanic, right? <laughs> Like slash journalist or something, <laughs> state agent. Right. I think the avenues that are open to him at this point are kind of limited. Yeah. Uh, also, still potentially a wanted criminal. Right. Like, there's really a lot going on here. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the homely liberal says that his future lies beyond the Crawleys, and that Sybil must have been unique amongst their family. And he says, "Yeah, she was." Then she takes the car anyway, which kind of undercuts her entire argument. Yeah, it really, really sort of does there. So I hate her. (laughs) Right. And that was the end of the homely liberal. (laughs) We never see her again. Great. Lord Grantham asks where she is, and Branson says that she's gone home. And Lord Grantham says, well, that's a relief. And Branson looks shocked by that for some reason. Yeah, like, you know he hates her, Right. right? He's made that super clear. Very, very, very clear. Yeah. McGee asks Mr. Bricker what he was doing in Alexandria, and he says, uh, escaping from winter, looking at beautiful things. And she counters beautiful and very ancient things. And he says he doesn't agree because he is eye-banging her something fierce. No, I know. She's like, no, I think the ruins in Alexandria are very ancient. Oh. You like me. Yeah. Anyway, uh, this is interesting. We've never seen McGee uh, tempted by anybody. Yeah. And uh, this guy seems a lot more delightful than Lord Grantham, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> he really he's got does. And yeah. he knows about art. Yeah. Uh, he's friends with Charles Blake. I'm yeah. a fan. Yeah. So I will marry Mr. Bricker or Murdy. Okay. Basically at this point. Okay, great. This is in my, my rankings <laughs> of dudes I would marry on Downton Abbey. I'll notify the appropriate authorities. Charles Blake is a distant third. Okay. <laughs> I think that's fair. I think it is also fair. I mean, his hair is great. He's got a really great haircut in this episode. Yeah, he does. I have to say, like, whatever they did, like, he looks really on point. Yeah. So good job, Julian Ovenden. I'm sorry that you felt the need to sing so very many songs on the Downton Abbey Christmas album. Because, like, literally nobody cares that you're a vocalist. No, I know. He's like the Jenna Maroney of that CD. (laughs) Oh, I can sing another. (laughs)
Rose is all white privileging to Charles Brake about how bad the Russian refugees have it. And Lord Grantham stupidly decides to say that it's good that the homely liberal isn't there or she would give them a lecture on how the Russian aristocrats deserve their fate. Why would you bring that up? Right. Like, the whole point of her not being there was so that you wouldn't have to have an awkward conversation, which, guess what's about to happen? Right. Why don't you just all say, <laughs> to everything and, you know, get through dinner? Yeah, Jesus. Get some drinks. Not anymore. Well... Branson says that he just hopes that the new system will be better than the old one and then gets into this little pissing match with Lord Grantham about, you know, whether killing aristocrats can be justified, blah, blah, blah. Mr. Bricker says, oh, is this what they call a lively exchange of views? And I'm like, aren't you a scholar? Shouldn't yeah. you know how to identify something? Yeah. All right, Mr. Bricker, you've fallen to a more distant second. <laughs> <laughs> Mary says that this is when Lord Grantham usually gets his gun. Grantham's got a gun. (laughs) (laughs) McGee tells Mary not to tease Mr. Bricker. Like, Mr. Bricker understands Lord Grantham's not going to actually get his gun. Well, he did just flirt with her. So (laughs) maybe she feels the need to be like, no, 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 keep flirting with her. (laughs) No, that's a good point. Keep flirting. Uh, And that they won't split that night, partly to keep... Lord Grantham and Branson are from killing each other, but also so that Mr. Bricker can go see the painting. Everyone leaves the dining room, and on his way out, Lord Grantham asks Carson about his opinion of the memorial location. Carson says that he knows his garden view is losing, but he would like to be convinced before officially conceding. Yes. Also, uh, uh, support for Oliver Cromwell and the execution of King Charles was mentioned in the previous scene, which got me very excited. If you would like to hear my thoughts about it, please, I can talk for hours. He really can. He has read this one book about it like 17 times. It's really fascinating. (laughs) You love Oliver Cromwell because you have a big head and you like being called a round head. (laughs) That's not why. I know. But, uh, you know, he's cool. I'm going to start calling you round head, round head. All right, Roundhead, next scene. Long live the Republic. (laughs) Rose asked Lord Grantham if he's heard that the king will be speaking over the wireless. And Lord Grantham is like, what? what? You cray. Yeah. Uh, And Carson is like, no, that's that's a totally real thing that is happening. Like, didn't Lord Grantham used to get his papers ironed and sent (laughs) up to him every day? What's happened? Well, he doesn't read them. (laughs) Just checks for creases. (laughs) Lord Grantham is intrigued and wonders if they have to listen if the king is talking, which uh, I guess that's the whole point of having a king. Yeah. He could have you killed. So Carson is like, oh, you know, maybe the king is a weak man who's capitulating to his advisors. But then Lord Grantham is like, no, he's not weak. And Carson's like, no, man, we all have to, like, do stuff we don't want to do. Right. And then Lord Grantham is like, well, then we have to, like, support the king while he's being forced to be modern yeah and he said that they can just hire a wireless and he supposes it won't corrupt them if it's just in the house for a day which is not true that is not true and that is the entire business model of rent to own furniture (laughs) yeah (laughs) baxter finds molesley moping in the dark outside he was there earlier when uh branson was getting the homely liberal off in the car right and i don't know why but it didn't seem important to mention him but he has been there the whole time apparently yeah so Baxter says she's let Mosley down, and he's like, um, like only kind of? <laughs> yeah. But Baxter says she's changed and is different. Uh, yeah, she used to be interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Mosley, shame we didn't get to see that. 
oh, you know, they're going to do that Downton Abbey prequel about young <laughs> McChee and Lord Grantham. I'm sure she'll show up in there. <laughs> Steal their jewels. <laughs> she'll be a protege of the, the Duchess. Duchess. So Baxter says, wait, okay. Molesley wants to know why Baxter stole those jewels because he doesn't believe that she did it like on her own because of course she couldn't. She's she, essentially like a blob of customers. Right. Like that's how exciting. She has no will. No. Uh, Baxter says she doesn't want to get into it even though that makes no sense. Right. Like she's just like, oh, I don't want to like talk about it. And she's like, oh, I wasn't starving. I just was a bad person who went to jail. And Molesley is like, okay. And she's like, I can't rewrite history. And I'm like, that's not what anybody's asking. They simply want an accurate retelling of what happened to you. And it's just, and I mean, you know, this show does this fairly often, but this is just the most egregious stretching out of a plot line for no reason other than stretching out a plot line. No, Mosley just wants to know what she did as does McGee. Yeah. It's like murder prison without the possibility of shanking. (laughs) So Mr. Bricker and McGee are looking at the Della Francesca. Apparently the second Earl of Grantham was the art collector and bought it on his grand tour in 1789. Uh, As the Bastille was falling (laughs) and his mom like basically called him home immediately and was like, hey, you need to get out of France right now. They're killing people just like you. Yeah. And uh, there was a lot of art at discount prices. Yep. It was a fire sale. <laughs> Isis looks on appreciatively like the cultured dogager that she is. I love Isis so much. I know. Actually, I know Isis is a girl, but gay marriage is like almost legal now. So number one, I would marry Murdy. <laughs> number two, I would marry Isis. Number three, I would marry Mr. Bricker. And then it just in fourth, Charles Blake. Okay. Uh, they chuckle about mothers, and he keeps uh, eyeing McGee, who says that she would be happy to show him some of the second Earl's other paintings the next day. And Bricker is like, yeah, I could stay here for how long? I got nothing else, just... Yeah, I got my tan. Right. I got this dog here, like, you're here, this painting. Right. I feel like if I stay here long enough, maybe I can make something happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, then the dumb current Earl comes in and tells him that there's coffee in the drawing room and calls Isis over. Downstairs, Daisy's cleaning up in the kitchen and she says the homely liberal's a great teacher and if she'd had a teacher like that earlier in her life, things might have turned out different. Mrs. Patmore stupidly points out that things didn't turn out so badly, which, like, Mrs. Patmore's the one sitting on her ass while (laughs) Daisy does things, so. And it's like 11 at night. Yeah. Mrs. Hughes comes in and says it's nice to see some smiles after a long day. Mrs. Patmore sings the homely liberals' praises, and Mrs. Hughes says Carson doesn't like her dangerous ideas, and they better be careful so he doesn't think she's infecting Daisy with them. (laughs) Carson overhears this and wonders who's infected. Infected with what? (laughs) But Mrs. Hughes uh, very deftly pivots and says that Daisy's afraid she's been infected with a cold by the delivery boy. (laughs) And Carson's like, gross. Yeah. (laughs) I'm out. And she's like, "Uh, this is just payback for your flux comments last week. (laughs) Carson tells Mrs. Hughes that he is going with Lord Grantham to scout sites for the memorial in the village. uh, And he says that he doesn't like it when they aren't on the same side. Mrs. Hughes says that it's impossible to agree all the time. And Carson says that he knows, but he still doesn't like it. Which, and I actually read this, I felt like... Uh, Mrs. Hughes is seeing this as him badgering her to, like, come around to his side. But I think that wasn't what he was trying to say. He was just trying to say just that he doesn't like it. No, I agree. And I think, you know, it, again, is the end of a long day. And this may not be the time for a semantic discussion. Right. But, you know, he seems like he's arguing in good faith to me. Yeah, yeah. 
Up in her room, McGee tells Baxter that she can't make a decision about whether or not to sack her until she knows all the facts. Baxter continues not telling her all the facts. McGee says out loud that she doesn't know why she hasn't sacked Baxter, but she can't do it. She still can't make a decision. And I'm like, you know, writers, if you don't know why a character (laughs) isn't doing something, the way to deal with that is to not write that into the scene. Like, this is so sloppy. Yeah, McGee's like, well... Your because, contract with Downton Abbey isn't up yet, <laughs> and I guess we can't get rid of you for some reason. I mean, because, you know, it's well established that it's hard to replace people like that if you're comfortable with them, you know, and it's, it's you know, like all the problems that the Dowagers had and that sort of thing. Yeah, it just... So, like, there's a perfectly reasonable motivation in there, but ugh, yeah. just don't keep dragging it out, which they will. Uh, Mr. Blake wonders what's wrong with Branson. Like, was something wrong with him? Uh, I don't know. Just well, maybe he saw his face when Lord Grantham was like saying how much he hates the homely liberal. <laughs> Possibly. Mary says that the Lord Grantham would blame the homely liberal, but that she is not so sure. Rose says Branson has so little life away from the family, and Mary says none since Sybil died, but maybe now he is becoming who he used to be, which is skept- uh, questionable. A chauffeur? <laughs> right. Wouldn't that solve everybody's problem? <laughs> Blake asks if that's a bad thing. Mary says that maybe for the family, but not for Branson. A Rose goes up and asks if they might get a wireless. Mary says that if Lord Grantham isn't going to get one for the king, then the cause is hopeless, which is fair enough. That's the most reasonable thing anyone said about a wireless so far in this episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Blake mentions that Rose's idea of ordinary life is amusing and says that he's going to bed and Mary says that she hopes that he will be happy if she does choose Gilly. And Blake says that nothing would make him happier than seeing Mary happy. Eh, you know, fair enough. And But he wants her to be really sure before she decides because he knows that she is so much cleverer than Gilly. Uh, that's yep. a neg. Yeah. <laughs> that's a neg. Yeah. Also manifestly true. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, he says that that worked last century when women had to pretend to be stupid, but now that they get to pretend less, uh, bad move, Amber. <laughs> Mary says that she thinks Gilly is plenty smart, and Blake's like, uh, all right. And we agree with Blake. Yeah. Gilly is dumb as a gill. Yes. <laughs> Mary is insulted and, and says that Blake is acting like she's a silly housemaid drooling over a picture of Douglas Fairbanks. She's not drooling at all. Right. So I don't see how she could think he's thinking that. Uh, Blake uses the word sex and Mary loses her mind. And then Blake ghosts. Team Blake! Look, <laughs> this is pretty solid. It is. No, this is no, really... Look, and I totally, as a courting tactic, I totally support it. Because mm-hmm. he's like, um, you should like really think about this. Yeah. Because I also think Blake knows Gilly better than Mary. Yeah. Like Blake right, and right. Gilly have been in contact. Well, cause they both live in London, yeah, right? Or yeah. at least they spend more time there yeah, than she does. They're, you know, acquainted. Yeah. 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 And it just was very like, you know, not too pushy and not all this thing. Just no. Very... And you know, I think he did a really nice job. Well, and like, you know, he, uh, he's thrown Mary off already by not appearing to be exceptionally upset by any of this. Right. Right. Which, uh, that was my whole plan. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah so i i think blake is uh he's sitting pretty i don't know how it's going to resolve itself but uh but he's, he's he's playing he's kept his hand in yeah yeah 
Up in McGee's room, Lord Grantham is sputtering that Branson is just a ventriloquist dummy for the homely liberal. And I'm like, well, only because you keep making him wear that tuxedo. <laughs> and uh, Lord Grantham is just like losing his mind and saying that the homely liberal is going to steal Branson away and he'll basically kidnap Sibby to be raised by that harpy in an American sewer. And I'm like, I don't know what you think goes on in america <laughs> right uh, also once again your wife is an american yeah like i don't think that their sewers are any better or worse than they are in britain <laughs> right either case generally not used for raising children yeah uh at any rate mcgee's just kind of like uh you can't like stop him from like living his life and lord grantham's like but i want to <laughs> and then he gets in bed and yells at mcgee to tell mr bricker to stop flirting with isis because it's very rude to try to take other people's dogs away from them and this is lord grantham's <laughs> finest moment it's the granthamist grantham it is just cute bonneville <laughs> just nails it and then mcgee just like rolls over he's like all oh, right i'll tell him to stop flirting right and she is not pleased because she has been enjoying this attention well and you know yeah she's like yeah it's very it's it's nice well also it's kind of like uh we're adults who've seen each other naked for like 35 years right maybe you could like talk to me like a real like human being like and tell me what you actually want he's super worked up oh yeah he's very upset Anna walks Mary through the things that she has packed, pointing out the diaphragm, and Anna asks if she's sure that Mary wants to go through with it, and Mary's like, oh yes, but then monologues her anxieties. I assume that this is her Emmy speech, because I can't see any other reason for it to be in here. Fair enough. Uh, she, you know, she wants to get married and definitely doesn't want to get a divorce. And so this is, and that men and women will have to live in much closer quarters than they used to. And so this is, this is what she's got to do. Well, it's that, and it's that they have to live in closer quarters with their servants. Right. And she seems very concerned that Anna thinks what she is doing is wrong. Mm, mm -hmm. Uh, clearly not enough to change her course of action at all. Well, so I don't know why she's bothering to even talk about this but whatever yeah i mean you know she spends as much time with anna as anybody else so and that brings us to our second recurring segment fashion backwards with our very own brazier buff kelly thank you tom so i wanted to talk a little bit about underwear because things have changed a lot underwear (laughs) uh all right (laughs) you super mature co-host um so mary's going on this trip alone right and couldn't possibly have not taken her maid with her if she was making this same trip in 1912. Mm. Um, you know, just the corsetry and everything was so much more complex. Mm-hmm. But we're in 1924, and it's a lot less complicated to get dressed than it used to be. So the kind of fad, and it's also interesting because we're in 1924, and really fashion changed drastically in 1925. Hmm. We're still very much in this uh, era where very like tubular dresses are popular. Right. Um, and I'm getting actually a lot of great information from a website called Witness to Fashion. Hmm. The URL is witness to the number two fashion.wordpress.com. Uh, the author doesn't credit herself by name, so I don't know what her name is, but she's a costumer. Oh, okay. And it's some of the most detailed information I've ever seen. Excellent. Um, and she has a lot of like archival photos, like from her family and like vintage ads and, and dress patterns and stuff like that. So I definitely recommend that if you're interested in fashion of any era, not just this one, she really covers a broad swath. Um, so right after the war, uh, <laughs> women kind of ditched their corsets in general and they were pretty much only wearing like, 
uh, you know, a, a camisole mm-hmm. or a slip or something like that. And a couple years later, they really started reintroducing foundation garments again. Okay. But the corset kind of fell out of fashion. If you remember previous installments of Fashion Backwards, <laughs> the Edwardian area... The Edwardian era, toward the end, they're doing the uh, the S-line, long-line corsets. Right. So you have, you know, the ones that sort of, like, push your bust and your buttocks out, and then uh, that start going down, like, they hit, like, mid-thigh. So we're talking very, very uncomfortable, very uh, poor mobility. Yeah. And at this point, designers really started thinking about how to make underwear movable. And actually, it's at this time that the sort of, like, flexible stay is created. Oh, okay. Rather than, like, whalebone or, like, steel boning and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So you can actually bend at the waist. Right. Um, and, you know, do stuff that you might need to do. <laughs> right. So the ideal figure at this time was definitely this very androgynous, boyish figure. Mm-hmm. And so the foundation garments were developed to create that look. Brasiers had been around for a while, but it wasn't until a little bit later, kind of like in the um, 1920s, actually, sort of brasiers as we know them today okay. were created um, before they looked more like, you know, a camisole that was sort of shaped a little bit. Mm, okay. um, so you could take a... Uh, Brazier or a bandeau, which if you are familiar with a bandeau, like bathing suits, the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were basically like breast binders. Okay. Um, so you could flatten your bust and your back to kind of make it look like you were more boyish than you were. And not everybody did this. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some women who wore the fashions of the day without any foundation garments and mm. they look fine yeah. to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, so the bandeau was more skimpy. It's just, it really is just this band okay. that goes around. I mean, it had straps and everything. And then the brassiere went down to the waist generally. And both brassieres and the bandeau uh, would have tabs that you could a- attach them to a girdle or a high waist corset, depending on sort of what you were doing. Mm-hmm. Because if you were using a bandeau or a brassiere to flatten your bust, you are also kind of getting like a big like tube of flesh right. uh, either at the top or the bottom, more likely at the bottom mm-hmm. where that, you know, you can't just right. it magic has to go your somewhere. flesh away. Yeah. yeah. So if you had a girdle, you could smooth that line mm. versus having this sort of weird bulge in the wrong place. Right. It's not even like a muffin top. It's no, it's, it's like a, a, it's a stump. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so for women who were heavier set, they had these things that they had brassiers and bandeaus that were made out of uh, rubber. Oh. Uh, a company called Madame X made these. Oh. So you would wear an absorbent undergarment and then put the rubber undergarment on to sweat out your fat. Basically. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's not clear in here how effective that actually was. I mean, that's going to be mainly water weight. And, right. Yeah. You know, it's not like they were out working out. They were yeah. just going through the course of their day, most likely. Um, and so there were also some brassieres that were a bit longer lined. They looked a little bit more like shapewear that we think of today, except that they, you know, flattened out the bust and also the buttocks a little bit. Mm. Um, but they had longer garter belt straps attached so that, you know, women could still kind of wear their garters and handle all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. I also learned that in the late 20s, the Maiden Form brand was created kind of as a counter to something called the Boish Form Binder. So that was definitely, uh, you know, something that was really targeted to flattening. Yeah. And then um, 
in the book Uplift the Bra in America, it suggested that Maiden Form was created specifically uh-huh. to be like, hey, you know, you're beautiful just the way you are. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this was still kind of weird and primitive because you're like kind of like Legoing a bunch of different foundation garments. Yeah. So what was created after that was something called a corselet, which is spelled a million different ways. Okay. Like there's no standardized spelling. But it was a bit longer. So, you know, you could buy it in a store. It was basically just, you know, all in one. Mm-hmm. Like you could just be like, okay, I'm not going to deal with all these tabs and hooking all this stuff. It's just going to be this one garment. Yeah. And there were also patterns you could make your own. But obviously nobody on this show would be doing that. Yeah. That's not that and of course, all of this is in service of these dresses. And this is, you know, the last year that we should be seeing this on Downton Abbey. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, dresses that kind of hang straight from the shoulders and really don't do anything for your figure. Right. Uh, which, if you have a figure, is difficult. Right. And I think it's really interesting because we see McGee wearing these types of fashions. And obviously, Isabel and Violet are not right. keeping up with the trends. Um, but the younger girls certainly are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was just a lot of confusion sort of about hemline length. And there were a lot of sort of like false waists so you'd have a waist at the natural waist and then you'd have a second like drop waist Hmm. or you'd have an underskirt that extended the hemline yeah um skirts were a lot longer than they were during the warriors probably simply due to the fact that there was no longer any kind of ration on material right i did remember noticing because we so rarely see a full length shot of everyone i noticed mary wearing one dress at one point that was like uh, shorter that was almost to her knee mm-hmm. whereas I felt like usually I've been seeing they've they've been down, yeah down. definitely and I mean we really start seeing those hemlines rise in 1925 mm. and you start seeing that art deco influence a lot more at that point like we're still firmly in like the flapper era right. even though boy we sure got robbed on seeing much <laughs> of that oh we got a taste <laughs> um but one thing we do see kind of carrying over is what we call the surplice line. And it's kind of like a dress that fastens on a bias. It's not a bias cut, but there's sort of like a diagonal line uh-huh. across um, the, the the breast area down right, to the waist. Right. Um, so I'm very curious, you know, when we get into the next series to see sort of how this changes. Yeah. And I mean, you know, kind of now that I know more about this stuff, we'll see in yeah. future installments how this is being used. Yeah. Well, that'll be nice too, just because I feel like there wasn't much of a change between last season and this season. There really wasn't. And I actually, this website's been great mm-hmm. because there is this very hard stop mm-hmm. right smack in the middle of the 20s uh-huh. uh, where fashion really, really changes a lot. Okay. So we should be seeing some different stuff. Okay. Um, and I, you know, fortunately now I have a better resource. Yeah, uh, for that, that kind of thing. That is excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Kelly. You're very welcome. So in the village, Lord Grantham, Carson, and Isis are scouting out a location and arguing about the memorial. Isis isn't. She's above that kind of thing. <laughs> well, she already knows where the memorial is going to be. <laughs> then they run into Mrs. Elker. What's she doing there, do you ask? Why, she likes to stop by the graveyard to let her son visit her dad's grave. His dad. Yes, his dad. I mean, I imagine her dad's probably buried around there somewhere too, but yeah. that's not what they're there for. Yeah. Um, and she helpfully and unpromptedly talks about how great it is that it's here convenient on her way to the shop and that what a great place for a memorial that is. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow, that is very uh, coincidental. That's yeah. all. Uh, yeah, but that settles that. Yeah. 
Maybe so, she's a plant. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Maybe Lord Grantham uh, hired her. It's very, it's very possible. It is. Uh, but in any case, it means that everybody agrees that Lord Grantham is right, which does not happen all that often. It really doesn't, especially so, anymore. Yeah. Back at Downton, the radio people set up the radio while Mrs. Patmore and Daisy look on. Daisy wonders why it's called a wireless when it has so many wires. And we drive on a parkway, but we park on a driveway. <sighs> Mrs. Patmore is also similarly put out by this question. Uh, Rose has her nose all up and everything and wonders why nothing's happening. And the dude's like, uh, it's got to warm up. Like, we're, yeah. we're professionals. Oh, you're a wireless expert all of a sudden? Yeah. So suddenly, music comes out of the wireless. Rose says it's Jack Helton, I think. It sounded like Jack Helton. I tried looking up Jack Helton and Jack Elton, and I could not find any evidence of either one being a thing. Well, let's call the whole thing Elton John. (laughs) So Carson That did keep coming up. (laughs) Carson comes in and chases all of the servants out of the room for standing their mouths agape at this new technology. Mrs. Hughes is excited and says Downton is finally catching up with the times, and I say yawn. Right. I don't care. Like, yeah, let's explore that ground some more. (laughs) Boy, have things changed since the war, do you think? (laughs) At Pig Farm, Edith is dandling Marigold, and Mrs. Pigman is standing by not having it. At all. No. So Edith finally feels the death stare penetrating her shoulder blades and leaves. And Mrs. Pigman lets Mr. Pigman have it. Because she says that Edith is just going to come along and fill Marigold's head with dreams and then lose interest and abandon her, which is a perfectly reasonable thing it for her to be thinking. It is a perfectly reasonable thing for her to be thinking. Uh, the piglets all file in. And to their credit, uh, they do not ask why none of them has been semi-adopted by an aristocrat. Right. Like, what are these poor kids going through? <laughs> no, I know. I mean, honestly, I'd be relieved if I were then. I mean, I'd be like, well, at least I'm not a foundling who's driving a wedge between our parents. I Can just... we drown her or something? We've got a nice thing going on this pig farm. <laughs> yeah. I just imagine Lady, you know, Edith's there with Marigold. One of the other kids comes up. He's like, excuse me, Lady Edith, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> You're not a foundling. <laughs> in the hall, we think. That it's some hall. Right. It's not entirely clear where they are, but all the family and servants are gathered to listen to the king's speech. Yes, in, uh, precise, of, in precise like order. Yes. Not since the first season promo photos have we seen <laughs> such straight lines. Yeah. Uh, as the king begins speaking, the dowager countess stands up and everyone else follows suit. Mrs. Patmore leans over to Daisy and double checks to make sure that the king can't hear them, even though they can hear him. Right. And Daisy confirms. She's yes. like, it's fine. Yeah. Calm down. <laughs> Somebody comments about the fact that Mary is missing it on her boring sketching trip. Irony, as she arrives at the Grand Hotel in Liverpool and checks in. Uh, back at Downton... The radio plays God Save the King, and Lord Grantham turns off the radio yeah. uh, and smashes it. <laughs> JK. No, he, uh, he he definitely goes and turns off the radio like while they're still holding the last note. Yeah. It's like the Sparse Bangle Band. It's like, all right, play ball. Let's go. <laughs> so he asks what Carson and Mrs. Hughes think for some reason. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> Carson says he prefers to think of the king on the throne, and Mrs. Hughes likes the radio situation. She says that she thinks it makes the king seem like less of a myth. Isabel says that the radio does make the king seem more real. And I'm like, hey, remember when everybody met the king last year? (laughs) Who the fuck cares? Many of you have met him repeatedly. Uh, Also, remember the time when you saved his son from sending naughty messages to that lady? Right. That son's going to be king. Will that seem real? Anyway. Anyway. (laughs) 
So the Dowager Countess wonders if it's a good thing to strip the magic and mystery from the monarchy. And Isabel's like, yeah, duh, of course. And the Dowager Countess is like, I'm not so sure if they want to keep living at Buckingham Palace. Right. Uh, which, in yeah. light of the Russian situation, yeah, kind I think, of a good point. I think she's dead on. I mean, there is no actual point to the monarchy. You know, the only reason they exist is this myth. Mm-hmm. So if they seem like normal people, it'd be like, hey, why can't I have a job that requires me to do nothing except mm-hmm. wear nice clothes all the time? And, uh, yeah. The servants all file back downstairs, and Anna tells Thomas to cheer up and says that it must be hard to not have Jimmy Kent around and that everybody needs a special friend. Uh, and Thomas says that everyone hates him, and it's... This scene is so weird because it's like, Thomas and Anna haven't been super friendly. Right. I mean, Anna's just nice to everybody in yeah. general, no matter how shittily she's being treated. Yeah, and it, to me what it was, this was just a sign of, like, if they had just gone ahead and killed Bates back in the day... And if they'd, you know, this whole Baxter thing wasn't happening, this is the sort of thing that could be going on downstairs as Anna and Thomas, Mm -hmm. like, you know, they're both fine actors, you know, and then Bates wanders in. And I don't think he, I don't think he's any good at acting. Like Bates. Bates, no. Yeah. Like he's a potato. Yeah. He's He's a potato that walks and talks. I think he's, he's my least favorite actor of all the main cast. Um, Yeah. Regardless, this scene's a resounding fart noise. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. I don't know why it's here. Right. Lord Grantham has decided that they can keep the wireless. Gee, this is what passes for a plot point these days, people. Yeah. So I uh, better enjoy it. Rose says... Well, at least they resolved it in one episode. That's true. <laughs> if only Baxter were more like that wireless. Uh, here is where Rose has its shame. You mean shame. you could turn her off? Huh? You mean you could turn her off? <laughs> this is where Rose says it's a shame that Mary had to miss the oh, speech. okay. Yeah. I always put the stuff... From the episode in these recaps. Well, sometimes you don't. No, I always do. You're wrong. Moving on. Uh, So we get a smash cut to Mary in her hotel room. There's a knock at the door. And it's Gilly! Hey! Confirmed. He has an adjoining room, and Mary says she thinks it's mad to not give a false name. Then Gilly says that lies should be as close to the truth as possible. In which case, why did Mary not just tell her family she was going to Liverpool? Yeah. With Annabelle, what's her name? Well, she hadn't gotten this sage advice at the time. (sighs) Mary wonders how he managed to get adjoining rooms, and Gilly says he's not a complete halfway. <laughs> I'm like, have you been talking to Blake? Uh, and luckily, the manager isn't either. I'm like, yeah, it's bro code. Like, dudes have been doing this forever, Mary. Like yeah. being a simpleton. <laughs> Mary wants to know their plan, and Gilly says they'll go to get a scrumptious dinner, which, pro tip, guys, if you're trying to seduce a lady, try to keep the word scrumptious out your mouth. Right. Because and nothing about that is sexy. Like, unless you're Willy Wonka. Even then? <laughs> <laughs> not in the not in the bedroom. Uh, anyway, then he says they'll come back, and she says then we'll make love, and he says yes, we'll make love all night long or until my dick runs out of steam. Yeah, no, he's uh he's awfully confident. Yeah, and I'm, I'm like, like, have you ever had sex before? <laughs> right. I think he has. Well, I, th- I think he probably has too. Uh, anyway, and then they kiss, and it's the least sexy kiss the show has ever had. Yeah, and I'm including like Bates kisses. Yeah, and- it's just like. It's just, yeah, there's just a sense of obligation about it. Yeah, it feels gross. Yeah, well, I mean, this whole, like, making an appointment thing just doesn't, it hasn't, you know, it doesn't make it very romantic. I mean, I think it could be. Well, I think it could be, but... They're so boring. I know. Well, they're so boring. And, I mean, you know, she's she's the one that's basically made this into a job interview. <laughs> Well, it is a job interview. Well, it is. But Listen, also, pro tip, guys. Every sexual encounter you have, that's a job interview. <laughs> right, but also don't think of them that way if you want it to be sexy. Mm, I don't know. Well, 
<laughs> we'll continue this debate <laughs> another time. Yeah, let's make an appointment. Yeah. So Carson tells Mrs. Hughes that they have chosen a memorial site in the village and that he is sufficiently convinced that it's a good idea. And as a bonus, he is now in agreement with Mrs. Hughes again. And Mrs. Hughes gets all flustered by that. And I'm like, no one is shipping this. Please stop. I don't want this. Do not want this. Right. Quit holding hands in the beach in the end of season four <laughs> and quit doing this. Well, the end of season four already happened. I but. know. <laughs> if I had a time machine. <laughs> Thomas pops in and tells Carson that there's a policeman to see him. Uh, oh, but it turns out it's just this Mr. Willis, and he wants to know about Mr. Green. And also, no one is shipping murder prison. Yeah. No one. At all. I would rather watch a hardcore sex scene between <laughs> Carson and Mrs. Hughes than have to deal with fucking murder prison again. Yeah. But uh, Willis says that a witness to Mr. Green's death has turned up and they need to go poking around Downton and Mrs. Hughes is like, oh no, before it cuts to black. Right. Let's not belabor this. Yeah. Which brings us to the Abbey Awards. Hooray! Yay! First up, we have Best Evasion, which goes to the homely liberal for evading that dinner she didn't want to go to. Yeah, nicely done. Mm -hmm. I mean, she also didn't have anything to wear. That's also true. Uh, Worst Overbite, and that one we're actually giving to Lord Grantham. Uh, For his attitudes toward the homely liberals, who we may not like, right? uh, but he is being quite rude. Yeah, he, I mean, he, much like her, he's just as at fault for, like, needlessly escalating things as she ever was. He's a terrible host. Yeah. I don't know why people keep using them like a hotel (laughs) that never presents a bill. It's very unpleasant. Yeah, but it was pretty nice, and there's no bill. Worst decision goes to Scotland Yard yeah. for continuing to investigate the death of Mr. Green. You know, nobody liked him, Scotland Yard. Right? Can't you just let this go? Is there not better things for your taxpayer money than trains up to Yorkshire all the yeah, time? people still haven't figured out who Jack the Ripper is at this point. Why don't you get your cold case boys on that? <laughs> right. Or the mentalist. <laughs> don't you just mean Sherlock Holmes? Well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> he was the original mentalist. <laughs> he was. Uh, Gibson Girl Award, uh, a tough one this week. Yeah, nobody was super cute. Yeah, nobody blew us away, but we're going to go ahead and give it to Rose. I really like the outfit she was wearing at the dinner the homely liberal did not go to. Yes, it was uh, kind of gold with a black pattern yeah, on it. it was um, very cute. She looked all right at the end with the speech. Uh, and she, yeah, she was fine. What's interesting to me is that she still has, like, long hair. Mm. Uh, she hasn't gotten a bob. Yeah. And I think that's really odd. Yeah. At this point in time, especially given her past. Right. But whatever. Uh, yeah. And the backy this episode goes to Mary almost entirely on the strength of this super, super ugly dress she's wearing when she arrives at the hotel. Yeah. Like, like, were you trying not to be recognized? Because that is not cute. Yeah. And like, this is your let's have sex for the first time dress. Like, uh. Maybe she was expecting to have been undressed before he came in. (laughs) I don't know. No, I don't know know either. But Yeah. yeah, it was not good. And so she gets the backy. Way to go, Mary. Uh, cutest baby award that goes to Marigold this week. She had a line. She had a line. She said bye. Yeah, and she nailed it. Yeah, it's she a real was pro. Much cuter than George and Sibby listening to the King. Yeah, it's true. And finally, on the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smiths, we're awarding only one Maggie Smith this episode. It's true. She was barely in it. Yeah, she didn't I mean, get it's many good zingers in. L- a lot of that due to just lack of quantity. Yeah. Um, you know, we like what she, we like what she's doing with Isabel, you know, that whole general thing. Mm-hmm. The whole is, you know, 
is is a mur- <laughs> Murdabelle. Yes, the whole Murdabelle plotline is fun, um, but just there just wasn't much for her to do, and it you know nothing really stood out this time around. Yeah. So just one. There's still plenty of season left to hit that five. That's right. Um, and there was, this is a very, I mean, you know, like the plot of the week was just this wireless thing that was. Yeah, this was the Downton Abbey equivalent of a plate of semolina. <laughs> yeah. Like, it was not anything cool. Yeah, the only thing that was really, like, look, we like the development of Mary oh, yeah. getting laid. We just don't like Gilly. We don't like Gilly, but that's fine. He's, and you know. And his dumb face. Yeah, fair enough. And we like, uh, the Blake. fact. That, uh, well, we like Blake and we like the fact that McGee is maybe going to have something going mm-hmm. on. Uh, and if nothing else, she's at least feeling good about herself. Oh, yeah, which she absolutely should. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, hopefully Baxter will be exploded next week <laughs> and murder prison will never be thought of again. That sounds great. And, uh, <laughs> Thomas's character fr- will start making sense. <laughs> the first scene next week, it's, it's in that same scene <laughs> and the policeman goes, wait a minute, is this Downton Abbey? Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm supposed to be a downtown Abbey. Never mind. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> and on that note (laughs) it's time for us to go that's right so we'll be back with another recap for you next week so until next time up up yours yours downstairs downstairs. luncheon ow